1: Life is
0: a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Met Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
1: of a detour. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts. Dare to combine. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What did the Tudors eat for breakfast? What's the oldest recipe book? And how long have people been vegetarians? Well, in our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're tackling your questions on the history of food with the culinary historian, Annie Gray. Thank you very much for joining me, Annie, to talk about the history of food. So we've had loads of listener questions in on, I think it's fair to say, quite a varied range of topics. Um, so we're going to work our way through those. And I should say before we start that as with a lot of these everything you wanted to know podcasts, it's probably not going to be everything that you want to know about the history of food, but hopefully it should wet the listeners appetites sorry for the terrible pun (laughs) and um give them ideas of some more avenues to investigate um so I'm going to start us off with a question from Nathan Bayless who got in touch on Facebook are there any foods from the past that we don't have today that you wish you could try and I'm just going to add on my own bit there which is and are there any that you definitely would not want to try
2: um I'm going to answer the second bit first by saying, no, there's nothing that I wouldn't try. Um, Although, in some cases, I think I'd only want to try a small bit, but I do think it's important to be adventurous. Uh, And also, I suppose I'd have a stipulation, which is that, and it has to have been prepared by someone who knows what they're doing. So if I'm going to try something like cow's udder, which I would imagine to be relatively bouncy, I'd like it to be prepared by someone who's really good at cooking cow's udder. Because let's face it, you can have things today where you eat it and think, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. And then it's cooked by someone else. And you think, oh my God, I'm never going there again. So that's the second part. The first part, um, I'd quite like to try swan. Mm-hmm obviously kind of illegal today um and also quite particular in the past you had to get signets from that year's brood that were fattened up and then you ate them before they reached the end of their first year otherwise apparently from somebody who has eaten swan uh they're quite nasty tough and oily so i'd like to try signets because it was such a big feast food in the past um there's various things, sort of like fruit and vegetables grown in the past, where the modern varieties, I suspect, are slightly different. So it would be interesting to try those. So, a lot of the things I'd like to try, it's more about farming techniques and differences than it is necessarily about the foods themselves, because we can usually find the food itself or a modern version thereof. But I don't know whether, for example, a medieval chicken was very, very different to a modern chicken as long as the modern chicken is fully free range and has been dry hung and, has, you know, those kind of things. So I'd quite like to try things that have been grown or produced in the way they were in the past. That's a
0: really, really interesting question, isn't it, about the, the difficulties of recreating the tastes of the past. It's not as simple as buying a chicken from... Aster or Tesco and cooking it in a medieval way is it?
2: No it isn't and it's it's one of those things where can you ever really reach the past and I suppose with food you can certainly get halfway there using modern ingredients but of course even our mindsets are different so if I eat an apple I eat it with my modern mindset I don't eat it with the mindset of somebody in say I don't know the early medieval period where you, you've got your apple from a monastery but I think it is quite interesting when you you really take it back to basics. I've got colleagues who work at uh, the Historic royal Palaces, so mainly at Hampton Court, where you can go and see teams of cooks cooking food in the, in the Tudor era. Um, and one of the chaps there at one point did a, a huge sort of public experiment to look at how flour was bolted. So something as simple as flour, you think, right, I'm going to the supermarket, I'm going to get flour, I'm going to recreate this bread. But if you go back just a couple of hundred years, flour was bolted and that meant that you passed it through different sieves so you had six grades of flour ranging from pretty much bran all the way up to what was known as firsts and that was the stuff you used to make maunchit loaf or the very very posh stuff that was very very white white bread at that point was regarded as what you ate if you were genteel if you were upmarket it suited your you know genteel digestion which couldn't cope with coarse bran and you didn't want to fart basically so you had white bread but when you sort of sit and you actually bolt these things through different types of sieves you realize the work involved so first of all you realize how expensive white bread must have been and why but also how many grades of flour we've lost so when you make bread from the past and you say you're making bread for a middle class context and you're trying to recreate that what type of flour do you use and then you add in the fact that actually now our flour is made from um, wheat where effectively every every head of wheat is a clone. So our wheat is very, very consistent. We know what's in it. But if you go back to, say, 1820 and before, you have things called land races, which is where you sow your field with as many varieties of corn as you can do, loads and loads of different grains, einkorn, spelt, wheat, da 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 And whatever suits that field grows the best. So year after year, your field gets more refined and gets a different variety of grains in. So every field is subtly different. So every bag of flour is subtly different. And then when you sieve them on top, you have six different grades of flour. It's a lot like kind of terroir today as the French talk about it in terms of wine and that kind of thing. But it does mean that in terms of just something as simple as bread, arguably we can never recreate it. That doesn't mean it's not worth trying and it certainly doesn't mean it's not worth trying in a public history context. But these are questions that are quite interesting. So if I could try foods from the past, it would be to see how big that difference is so that I know when I'm reconstructing things, where the differences lie.
0: Fantastic. Um, so to take us right back to basics, um, we've got a question from Jack Howland 123, who asks, when did humans start cooking with fire? I don't know whether that's more of a pre prehistory archaeologist's question really than a food Well, historian. it is.
2: It's also a really debatable question, weirdly. You kind of think the answer must be quite obvious because we've dug archaeological-wise, there's so many different sides. But there's loads of arguments over it. I mean, it's, it is pretty certain that Homo sapiens always cooked with fire. So right from the beginning of our particular species um but there are arguments about how much earlier than that it happened because you get sites where you've got for example shells that have clearly got burn marks on well brilliant okay clearly cooking with fire except maybe not maybe it was a lightning strike where people then came out afterwards and scavenged so the evidence is really really hard archaeologically and there's varying schools of thoughts as to whether we started controlling fire and cooking with it 40,000 years ago or 250 thousand years ago or I mean you can you can kind of pluck a thing really. There's a really good book, though, by Richard Wrangham called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. And his argument actually looks at it from a a sort of um, evolutionary anthropological point of view. So his argument is actually the crux point came about 1.9 million years ago when Homo erectus first appeared and that the point where Homo erectus first appeared, where we started to walk upright, was driven by our control of fire. So there there were two stages in the evolution of modern mankind and one is eating meat which enabled us to come down from trees and start to evolve because meat has got so many more nutrients and proteins and stuff and it allowed us to get bigger and, and get stronger and then this other point where we started cooking and that's the real point where you start to see um really kind of Sort of speeded up evolution, and it makes a lot of sense as a thesis because we know, even from studying modern people, that raw food we will not get the nutrients from it. Those people that live on raw food diets are not getting the nutrition they need from their food, and a raw food diet will get you really thin, but you might also die of malnutrition. So cooking makes enables us to get much much more from our food, and that really is the secret to humanity's success.
0: Okay, so we're going to jump forward just a couple of millennium now. Um, Um, to another first in the history of food, uh, which King Louie on Instagram asked, what's the oldest cookbook that's ever been found? And are they recipes that we would recognise? I'm sure there's debate about this as well.
2: Well, there is and there isn't actually. There's, there are cookery books as in recipes or sort of lists of things. And then there's printed cookery books that we would recognise. So the oldest kind of recipes um, are Mesopotamian tablets. There are three clay tablets. And translated, there are recipes, in heavily inverted commas, for stews in these uh, that you could follow if you knew what to do because it's literally just a list of ingredients, but it's clear that it is they are recipes. And really up until the sort of, medieval era you find occasional books such as that not published books one of the most famous which I suspect that most people would have heard of is Apicius which is kind of it's been termed the first cookbook or the first Roman cookbook there's lots of dates attached to it because it seems to have been the product of many many people but the normal date given to it is about 10 um, AD so okay fine you've got this cookery book but it's not a published cookery book and yes you can cook from it and there are some really really good modern versions of Apicius so, if anybody does want to cook Roman food, I would say look for translations by Sally Granger. Um, and the recipes are really nice, they're absolutely brilliant. But is that a cookery book or is that an aid memoir written down and circulated? It's the same with some of the early manuscripts. So there's a, another one by a man called Taillevent. There's there's various medieval manuscripts. And as you move into sort of 12th, 13th, 14th century, you get more and more of these manuscript books. The first one in Britain is a thing called The Form of Curry. The first one I should point out that we have surviving. And there's copies of that, several copies. So it's not that there's one, it was written down and circulated. And The Form of Curry was written for uh, the royal kitchens in about thirteen ninety. And again, if you know what you're doing, you can follow the recipes. And although they are written in Midi- Middle English, they are translatable. You can cook them. You have to interpret them. Mostly there are no methods. Obviously, there are no timings. There are no um, temperatures. There's nothing like that. It's literally just a sort of, you know, take this, do this, smite this, see this. So you can follow it. And again, you can get modern translations of it and modern interpretations of it, I should say. And you can cook those recipes. And that's all great. And there are lots and lots of books you can buy again today on medieval manuscripts and cooking. So we've got quite a lot of information, but they're not cookery books per se. Uh, For that, you have to wait really until the 15th century and you start to get printed cookery books pretty much as soon as the Bibles come off the printing press then you start to get cookery books um, in Italy first and then spreading quite rapidly across the, the, rest of the, the rest of Europe. So once you get to the Tudor period, then you can get quite a lot of printed cookery books that we would recognise they're still not very easy to follow but that's still the case in the 18th century uh, and a lot of them i mean you know these are printed books they're really expensive they're aimed at people who know what they're doing and don't need to have methods given to them so it's a longer answer than perhaps um, you were expecting but there's evidence of recipes there's evidence of recipe writing then you get printed and it sort of snowballs from there but literacy rates were relatively low as well into the Tudor period and into the 17th century and it's not really until the late 17th century early the 18th century that you get lots of printed cookery books and they coexist with manuscript books right up to the present day I mean I'm sure most people have got you know a book they keep scribbles in or cutouts from magazines and things like that so the two coexist and it's I mean they're a brilliant thing to study and they're a brilliant thing to cook from.
0: And just a quick question on the form of curry obviously when you say the form of curry most people's minds will think of curry the dish that we know today <laughs> there's no connection there is there?
2: No, none at all. Curry's just mixing, cutting. It's just a culinary term, the form of curry, the form of cooking, if you like. Uh, curry, the word is uh, late 16th century. So curry comes out of the Indian subcontinent. We then bastardise it. I mean, we, we are cooking curries from the 17th century, but uh, not quite as far back as 1390 in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, actually, on the note of curries, um, Kath Casper has asked on Instagram, how was flavour added to food before the arrival of spices?
2: Well, I think at that
0: point, you've got to say, what do you think
2: mustard is? <laughs> because mustard's native to Britain. Um, so even in countries that do not have the spices that we consider as, quote unquote, spices, so I, I guess you you know, things like chilli and um, cardamom, coriander, those kind of things, even before those started being imported into Western Europe, there were spices um and also there are foods like onions leeks garlic um lots and lots of bitter leaves there's loads of things with flavor um the diet of most people was vegetable based because that's all they could afford but there's loads of ways wild garlic you know all the sort of stuff we forage for today in inverted commas would be just stuff you ate in the past um and we get spices very very early i mean the romans are trading in spices pre-roman people are trading in spices spices are something as soon as you taste them you're like brilliant zing me up so pepper is a huge spice that's massively imported uh, a lot of what we would call old world spices are being imported in quite large numbers throughout really recorded history um, so things like cinnamon and ginger and cloves, huge kind of, I mean, cloves are like gold dust, nutmeg, all these things we have well before the advent of the sort of modern chilies and that kind of thing. Then you've got the New World spices, so that basically means chili, um, that then get re sort of export or exported from South America, usually by the Portuguese and the Spanish taken to India, grown there, change the course of Indian cooking as we think of it today, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there were lots and lots of ways to flavour food before modern spice blends. And a lot of those ways were very subtle. So if you eat medieval cuisine, the flavours are things like um, rose water, which is very, very popular, lots of pepper, lots of ginger. A gingerbread from the medieval era is incredibly complex because you've got ginger, pepper, cinnamon, cassia bark. You might well have cloves. You might well have cardamom, coriander, all of those in a gingerbread. So in many ways, the food of the past is much more subtle and much more complex than much of the food that we eat today. So I think it is very dangerous to suggest that everything was bland. A lot of it was, don't get me wrong, but a lot of food today is really bland as well. Yeah,
0: so you mentioned there the arrival of chilies in India. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit more about that and the transformative effect it had on Indian cuisine, because one of the most popular internet search terms that we've come across is Indian food history. I think people are always intrigued to know about the history of that. Yeah.
2: And I think as well in the British context, Indian food, you know, today it's virtually a national dish to have generic curry and one of the questions i'm always getting asked is when did we have curry or people didn't have curry in them days i get told that and it's a really fascinating story the kind of interactions between different cultures and the way in which globalization and colonialism let's face it have changed the food ways of different cultures so you have a thing called the colombian exchange which really gets going once the spanish in particular start to discover and then colonize south america and that is the process of bringing across foods from the new world to the old world and that's not just chili although that's probably the one we would think of most but it's things like tomatoes avocados the turkey um pumpkins things like that some of which are really important straight away i mean a turkey everyone's like oh my god it's a huge bird it tastes so much nicer than peacock bring it on so certain foods catch on really quickly both in western europe and across the rest of the world other foods are somewhat slower to take off so the tomato we introduce and grow ornamentally um for a long time and then eventually people start going do you know what this is actually quite cool let's start having i know let's make a sauce uh, and that's kind of late 18th century um, but what you find is of course people are colonizing lots of different areas in the world or at that point actually they're just trading with different nations so the portuguese and the spanish and the french and the british are all very much involved in what is now india and pakistan bangladesh um, the indian islands as well so of course they're trading with south america but then they come back to Spain and then they think I quite like these foods I'm taking them with me to this other place and slowly a lot of foods do travel across the world and where you've got cuisines that have say one spice in which could be pepper or long pepper or cubeb pepper or grains of paradise or any of these other things that we don't eat anymore but which we use to flavour food at the time sometimes people go let's swap that in and see what we think so chilli is a really good example because, of course, it's now such an integral part of Asian cuisine and in many, many forms, fresh, dried. You know, there are so many different varieties. And in Britain, we use cayenne pepper enormously in the 18th and 19th centuries independently of the fact that we're cooking curry, cayenne is like this sort of spice du jour. So those go across to India, they get grown, they enter Indian cuisine, we then pick up Indian cuisine and bring it back. There's a constant, if you drew lines across the globe showing where foods go from and where they come to and how they get re-imported and and, re-exported, you'd have kind of this scribble. Turkey is a great example because we call it Turkey. Why do we call it Turkey when it, it comes from um you know South America and, and the bottom of North? What, what is this? But it's because it got re-imported to Britain via Turkey. So we called it Turkey. Just it's bonkers, but absolutely brilliant when you start to look at these things and how they spread and where they spread. And you know, chocolate's another one that sort of comes across, spreads up, spreads down, all the rest of it.
0: Well, um, Patricia Huskins on Facebook asked what influence did the food found in the colonies have on the staple diet of britain but i think you've done quite a good job there um covering that one off
2: yeah i mean what i would say is the staple diet is very different to the diet of the rich so when these things first came in uh, they were tended to be expensive because they tended to be imports. Um, turkeys are meat, which means immediately it's not part of a staple diet of anybody because meat was something that was relatively rare. Turkey did become a staple for the rich very quickly because they liked it. Tomatoes, less so, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of took about two to three hundred years from the first discovery of those things for them to enter into what I would call the staple diet, as in something that's being eaten by the majority of people but certainly they did have a lot of influence and with something like curry you see that being talked about in sort of the late 16th century so 1570s 1580s eaten in the 17th century 1677 to 1680s maybe a little bit by a few people coming back from india becoming popular in the 18th century when you could buy curry powder ready-made and you could go to coffee houses and eat what was by then called curry and then it booms in the 19th century when it becomes a leftover dish so far removed from anything anybody would have been eating on the Indian subcontinent Mm. that it's unbelievable you know it it becomes this sort of thing that's yellow Um, and then of course you, you fast forward to the 1960s and people are eating Vesta curries and it's you know it's travesty um but on the other hand those anglo-indian curries are very interesting even if they're a bit weird and then you kind of come full circle now where we're rediscovering the food of india and indeed the other parts of that continent and going actually this stuff is amazing it's nothing like what I grew up with, but it's amazing. And so we've kind of it's taken us about three or 400 years to discover that the feed's really nice if you don't, you know, add pineapple to it or something. Mm.
0: You mentioned that we were a bit slow on the uptake of tomatoes. And um, Shepstagel on Instagram did ask what you can tell us about the origin of tomatoes. I just wanted to broaden that out a bit because a lot of people search for the history of Italian food and of course tomatoes are fundamental to Italian food so what can you tell us about that connection
2: well tomatoes are one of those things that look quite cool so that's why they were grown ornamentally for a long time and they're a bit dodgy. You know, you look at them and they're red. That's a a colour of danger in nature and they were thought to be related to deadly nightshade and people just thought they are a bit dodgy. For a while they were called um, love apples because, again, they were red, they looked a bit like a heart and gradually people did start cooking with them, especially in Italy. Italy was really the hub of cuisine in the sort of 17th century and slightly before so Italians became very well known for being Europe's best cooks. Eventually that then sort of bat on to France. Um, but a lot of the innovation in European cuisine was being driven by Italy in the 15th, 16th and early 17th century. And, and tomatoes were, were part of that, really. Obviously, the Italian climate as well is very good for growing tomatoes. Whereas if you're experimenting with it in Britain, yeah, good luck to you, especially in the middle of the little ice age in the sort of <laughs> early 18th century. It's not great without a greenhouse. Um, and they didn't get invented until the 17th century. So really, you know, you can see why it took a while to catch on. And you start to get recipes for them over here, kind of, there are a few recipes for them in the sort of 17th century, but they take off really in the 18th, you get stuffed tomatoes and then tomato ketchup um, makes its appearance. Uh, But just as a rival to walnut ketchup or mushroom ketchup or any of the other ketchups that are in at the time, which are really just a way of flavouring food. So everything in food is very gradual, really. There's no kind of one moment where suddenly everybody, Starts eating something. It's always a process of 50 to 100 years. Mm
0: -hmm. So, next, we have a really interesting question from Naomi Warwick on Facebook who has asked, How has food contributed to the development of national identity and nationalism?
2: Gosh, well, I could probably write a book about that. Um, But the short answer is, massive massive contribution to absolutely every nation's identity at every point through history um but if i narrow that down and look at britain uh we today think of ourselves as multicultural and eclectic and we point to the fact that we eat curry and fish and chips and all sorts of other things at the same time as as if, if that's what you want to that's your version of britain the other version of britain is the fish and chips roast beef beer-swilling version of Britain, they both coexist. And if you are British, you may pick one or the other, or you may drift between two, or you may not think about it, but they do coexist. And if you are not living in Britain, then you think, let's go and have a British, what's it going to be? Is it going to be roast beef and a full kind of roast dinner? Or is it going to be a fish and chips? Or is it going to be a full English breakfast, which is the other thing I think that is really a very, very British, um, stereotypical British food. And Those things, we might sort of smile about them today, but they were really, really important in the past. If you look at the 18th century in particular, which is a really formative period for national identity, and anyone who's really interested in the subject, there's a very, very good book by Linda Colley on the sort of way in which the late 18th century contributed to national identity and, and where all this comes from. But one of the things for the British at that point was this idea of beef and plum pudding. Those were the British foods. So plum pudding's basically Christmas pudding. And you'd eat the two together. It works. It works really, <laughs> really? well. Because it's like chutney. Yeah, yeah. Think of it as chutney. Okay. Because you've got all those kind of dark, fruity flavours. Um, so anyway, any municipal feast. So coronation feasts, birthday feast, coming of age feasts, Christmas, you know, you name it. If it's a shindig, beef and plum pudding and beer. Uh, And you have these enormous municipal feasts where thousands of people, there's one in Cambridge where 37,000 people are given beef and plum pudding to celebrate Queen Victoria's coronation. And they all sit on Parker's piece sort of laid out in huge tables, but you only get invited if you're deserving. Um, So beef and plum pudding is a huge symbol of Englishness and it's used quite aggressively and very overtly in things like political cartoons and satires and both written and visual. So if you think of Gilray or Rowlandson, uh, in fact, if you put into Google uh, or any other search engine, you know, Gilray Rowlandson beef plum pudding, you'll get things like um, there's a cartoon called the, the Plum Pudding in Danger, which is all about Napoleon carving up the world and the world is represented by plum pudding. There's another one where Napoleon is tied to a stake while John Bull and his wife, the symbol of Englishness, are cutting into an enormous plum pudding and an even bigger sirloin of beef. So this is a really important trope. And the idea is it goes beyond that it's, The kind of underlying idea is that Britain or the British person, British man in the street, is represented by a butcher. John Bull's a butcher. He eats meat. Other nations can't afford to eat meat. Therefore, straight away, we're better than anyone else. Also, we eat meat, which means that we are big and strong and tall and we can fight the French. And the French, as everybody knows, live on. Soup maigre, which is turnip soup. And frog's legs, because they're all poor and they're all weedy. And every satire you see as a French, because it's mainly anti-French propaganda, has a bandy-legged Frenchman who's sort of, pigeon chested and, and sort of a bit effete looking and put against the doughty Englishman who beats them up and then has breakfast. So it's, you know, it's very easy to smile and laugh, but they're really, I mean, they're very dangerous caricatures apart from anything else, because it all feeds into the British sense of superiority, the British sense of, of isolationism. You know, these things were alive and well in the 18th century, but they still affect our mentality today. Um, And the number of people who say that their favourite meal is a steak. And it may well be, but I also think it's because of this trope that's sitting in the back of our heads about what is British. It's a bloody steak. It's about beef husbandry and about masculinity and about, you know, yeah, it's really unrefined, not like this frou-frou French stuff. I mean, God, who needs sauces anyway? And that is 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 absolutely the attitude of the 18th century and it's also a lie because the aristocracy were all eating fruit frou french sauces anyway because you know why wouldn't they but then they claim they're a british and they put some beef on the sideboard anyway
0: <laughs> while we're talking about british national dishes james isherwood did ask about fish and chips and he did ask <laughs> when um did fish and chips become seen as a british national dish
2: uh, fish and chips makes their appearance as a thing together really in about the 1860s so fried, the lovely thing about fish and chips is that fried fish were essentially uh, came out of Jewish culture in the East End because you couldn't cook on the Sabbath so fried fish would be served and chips seem to have made their appearance in France in the late 18th century so the British national dish is a mixture of Jewish emigre food and French food uh, and Italian food if you have ketchup uh, or French if you have mayonnaise and you know it's brilliant um, so it appears sort of around the 1860s Manchester claims to have been the site of the first fish and chip shop so does London we'll never know and it took off really quickly because fried fish and chips was really tasty really nutritious and really cheap so it very quickly became a working-class food and I suppose it was really kind of the Edwardian period or around the First World War that it became very much a British national food and it was very much recognised as such so to the point that in the Second World War it wasn't rationed because it was seen as so vital not just to the health of the nation but to the morale of the nation still to come on the history extra
0: podcast
2: i mean the whole coronation of george the to be fair i'd quite like to go to i'd like to watch his ex-wife banging on the door screaming at him i mean it's so farcical and then i'd love to go down to brighton pavilion with him and see what the kitchens looked like before they ripped all of them down and left only one room of it
0: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So we've got a few few, um, questions now about slightly more healthy diets. But actually, (laughs) just generally, um, to start us off, Susan Barker asked, when did diet culture or dieting become a thing essentially? Did people always make a connection as well between food and health?
2: Yes, food and health really so much. Obviously if you're going to eat food it's going to affect you. So food has been associated with health as far back as It is possible to say the prevailing theory for a lot of history was a thing called Galenic theory, which is the theory of the four humours. And the idea was that you were uh, choleric or sanguine, melancholic, or uh, I can't remember the other one, but you were built up of these things and what you ate would directly affect your humour. If you were ill, it was because your humours were imbalanced. So if you, and it's very complicated because all the foods had properties and they could have a temperature property and a moisture property. So things could be cold and moist. It's lettuce. So cold and moist would be a lettuce. But obviously if you've got a cold, it's because you're cold and moist. So what you need to do is eat a hot, dry food And it's not always logical. I mean, ginger was hot and dry, but then I think so was white wine. So sugar was kind of neutral because no one really knew and it was kind of nice. So you don't want to kind of put it too far to one side because then you might not be able to eat it. But the idea was you ate foods to balance your humours and then you would be healthy. Add to this another thing called the doctrine of signatures, which was a way, if you look at foods, it it will have in it way of telling you what it does this is god's way of telling us what foods do so if you look at clary sage um the the flowers are are very blue and spiky it's going to do something blue and spiky to you it's it's uh, the leaves are furry it'll give you good hairs or you know there are loads of different things there's there's um cleavers which are sticky sweetheart so sort of most people are long and thin so if you eat those you're going to lose weight I mean, you will lose weight because they're horrible and they have no nutritional value whatsoever. But a potato, I mean, potatoes are really debatable. looks like a leper. It looks like skin that's coming off. This is if you are obviously in the 17th century. So if you eat the potato, will it cure your leprosy or will it cause your leprosy? and this is you know these are the stuff that debates are made out of it's why so many foods are labeled as aphrodisiacs because if you're sex obsessed which most humans are and you squint you can kind of make a penis or a vagina out of almost anything and people aren't stupid they are aware if you eat too much then you're going to get fat or it's going to affect you in different ways uh, gout of course is one of the most obvious things in the 18th century gout is the rich man's disease and it normally is men because they're the only people that can afford to eat an awful lot of seafood drink red wine drink port drink brown eat a lot of red meat you know all these things that contribute to gout very much a rich person's disease but in terms of losing weight through diets well people have always gone on diets um if you look at for example princess victoria later queen victoria her journals she started skipping lunch when she was a teenager because she decided she was overweight so quite clearly people know exactly what's going on uh but the first Diets, as we would kind of call them, brand them and sell them, were 19th century. And some of them are extraordinary. There's a thing called Fletcherism, which is about chewing your food um, a lot, a lot, like 40, 50 times. Uh, And then in its most extreme form, you then spit out the food and you just swallow the juices, which is kind of interesting, I would have thought, at a dinner party. Uh, You can get tools to help you with your Fletcherism. There's a kind of thing that looks like the... It's really scary. It looks like a torture implant, like a sort of comb with knives on and you run it back and forth over your food and it chops it all up for you into teeny, teeny, teeny pieces. And then you swallow that or chew it rather. And then you can spit it out. Um, Calorie controlled diets come along in the 1920s. There's a thing called the Hollywood diet, which is basically grapefruit and black coffee and cigarettes. Um, I mean, a lot of them will help you lose weight. They are not healthy dietary changes in most cases just as most diets aren't you know the only way sadly to losing weight and keeping it off is to change what you eat and what you, how you think about food so all of these things are diets in the modern sense as in you go on them for six weeks you lose loads of weight you come off it you put it straight back on again you go back on the diet and someone somewhere makes an awful lot of money out of you doing it
0: mm. something else that we've had a few questions on is vegetarianism and veganism so um both Messi christian and Matthew Smith, they asked, is vegetarianism and veganism are they modern phenomena or do they have an older history? They have a much older
2: history. Uh, early vegetarians were called Pythagoreans because Pythagoras was supposed to be a vegetarian, verging very much on the vegan, actually. Um, for most of their history, certainly vegetarianism veganism is more modern and certainly in the way that we see it today so veganism really is a post-1960s development vegetarianism is in the past very much tied up with religion and also with protest so for some people especially those that were religious and especially those in monasteries or nunneries they would give up meat and animal products because it was seen as something that holy people should do Um, in fact if you were catholic if you are catholic today you have meat-free days so the early church right across europe the early catholic church wednesdays fridays sundays quite a lot of saints days about half the year were meat-free days so medieval cuisine is a really good place to start if you're vegetarian and looking for a a way into history or the history of food because in the medieval period we had what were known as fast days and they were meat-free so they were meat-free in a kind of like fairly there were gray areas so seals and otters and things like that and beavers tails and certain seabirds were not meat because they were in the So that was fine. And you could pay a fine and get out of it. So it was all sort of a little bit kind of fudgy. But in theory, you had meat free days. So instead of milk, you would consume almond milk. Uh, There would be no butter, but you would use vegetable oils, all the things that you would see as tropes today. um, You know, almond milk really isn't new. Um, And so, and a lot of those foods are really, really, really good. But you could eat fish. That's the crucial difference. So if you're a vegetarian who eats fish, all those medieval recipes are perfect for you. Porpoise, sturgeon, dolphin, um, <laughs> not all of it, it's great. Um, and also you yeah, things like jellies. You wouldn't set a jelly with um, gelatin derived from animals. You set it with isinglass, which is the swim bladder of a sturgeon. So they're really good, really very ingenious ways around eating meat. Fast forward to the 17th century, and we have left the church in Rome, and uh, fast days are still kind of being kept by some people, but not very many at all. So, at that point, vegetarianism, sort of as a movement, but not called vegetarianism yet, is very much part of society but it is seen as very cranky. Um, there's a, I call Thomas Tryon who writes a lot of vegetarian books and he's very much tied up with religion and about protest as well. In the 19th century vegetarianism becomes associated with working class protest because it is seen that if you give up meat then you are stepping outside the norms of society and it's a really good way to do it By the late 19th century it's associated with suffrage because if you are a woman and you decide you're not going to eat meat again you're stepping outside this kind of bloody masculine patriarchal society society and early vegetarian restaurants are very much associated with women. They're and then that's also when the Vegetarian Society is founded. The modern movement, as in concerned about animal welfare, has its roots in the 19th century. So up to that point, you're doing it because of health or you're doing it because of belief. By the middle of the 19th century, people are saying, look, we don't treat animals well. Um, you know, we, we cram our chickens. We 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 whip animals to death. We are treating them so badly, a civilised society should not eat meat. And that's where you get the roots of the modern vegetarian movement come from. So it does have a really long history. I think one of the really important important things to remember though is that the majority of people for the majority of the past were vegetarian because they didn't have a choice so when it comes to modern vegetarianism and even more so modern veganism you cannot have that movement until everybody can afford meat because there is no point in protesting if you're if, if if no one's going to notice and that's very much true of veganism it's very much a movement that can really only exist in a wealthy western society um yes there are exceptions of course there are there are lots of exceptions of again it's religious groups mainly who and i'm thinking obviously of buddhism and things like that but in terms of a mainstream movement or anything even approaching the mainstream you can't do that until you can protest so when you look at the 19th century the idea that you would give up meat when most people could only afford a couple of pieces of bacon a week, if that would be ludicrous.
0: So, to move us on a little bit, Siobhan O'Farrell has a question, which is what is the oldest genetically modified food? Um,
2: I mean, we have been modifying foods genetically for a very, very long time. You know, we've been selectively breeding crops and cattle since the year Dodd. It's just that now we Modify them in a lab very, very quickly, rather than selective breeding, and all of the the issues that go with that. But I mean, proper genetic modification of crops that can be commercialized. I think it might be 1992 and be a tomato. Okay, so I I know it wasn't. It is a tomato, certainly, and it's a it's a states USA tomato. Um, And of course, you know, there's also creating the food and then there's allowing it to be marketed as well. And all the safety issues that go with genetic modification and the debates. And, you know, do we want a company to own our food? Should food even be patented? There's all these debates still to come. Uh, So the answer is it's very modern. um,
0: And those things are yet to be debated. And uh, XO asks, when were additives first introduced to food?
2: I would say define additive at that point. I'm assuming that she means petrochemical additives, in which case we're looking really at the late 19th century. So petrochemical food dyes, massive. I mean, like, you know, God, if you could dye it purple, dye it purple. That late 19th century, this is cool. This is so cool. Get yourself petrochemical food dye, petrochemical uh, food flavoring, add it to your ice cream. Yes, sir. But we've been adding things to our food for a long time. So baking powder is sort of mid-19th century. Uh, Custard powder around the same time. Um, Food colouring in terms of naturally derived food colourings, well, that goes back to the medieval period, if not before, because all you've got to do is pound some spinach in a pestle and mortar and you've got chlorophyll, you've got green food colouring. But I think in terms of where I suspect the question's coming from. It's late 19th century and you can see that in the growing debate over food adulteration and what's going into food and how bad it is and the fact that we start to pass acts out explicitly outlawing those things properly and really enforcing them from the late 19th century.
0: And what about the emergence of fast food? Where do you see that trend beginning? At least the Raymond period um, where
2: you've got people selling lamb chops out of trays to people on the street. Um, If you've got humans and they're going to want to eat fast. So uh, really, I mean, street food, fast food goes back an enormously long way. And modern stuff, the kind of, you know, burgers and bats, really is 1920s onwards. But in terms of a fast thing, I mean, you used to get um, baked potato man selling baked potato to people in queues for the theatre. And apparently it was a really good, if you were a woman and you were a bit chilly, you could put a baked potato inside your
0: muff and it would keep you really, really warm. So while we're talking about inventions, genetic modification, (laughs) additives, all that. Let's get on to probably the most important question, I think, of this hour, which is from Rachel O. uh, 2016, (laughs) which is who invented the first chocolate bar and when... (laughs)
2: Oh, 1847 fries is the short answer. The longer answer is that we discovered chocolate or rather chocolate was being consumed uh, in South America and Mesoamerica. It came over via the Colombian exchange and it was drunk at that point. So it was a really beautiful, spiced, often, chocolate drink. And that was the way chocolate was consumed for a very long time. Uh, 1830s, the Van Huyten process is um, patented, uh, which is about pressing chocolate to get out the fat no uh, if you buy or if you If you grind your own beans, the level of fat in a in a cocoa bean in in pure cocoa liquor, as it's known, is incredibly high. It's very, very difficult to do it in home. And you have to heat the mixture as you grind it because otherwise you just can't do it. So a process is developed to press out um, and to separate out the cocoa from the fat. And fat's brilliant because it's used in the beauty industry a lot and it smells divine. And it's also re-added back into chocolate bars to make them what they are. So 1847 chocolate bar is effectively the cocoa mixed with the right level of fat to make it melt in your mouth but not be really greasy or gritty or horrible. But then not really catch on because it's dark chocolate and people are like... What is this stuff? I mean, honestly, like, I drink my chocolate. Why do I want to eat my chocolate? Like, I'll, I'm prepared to put it in ice cream or like in a custard, but that. Uh, and then in the 1870s, you get the development of milk chocolate, which comes out of Switzerland, um, the Nestle, what will, will become Nestle, um, and you know, all that kind of stuff is happening. And from a British point of view, you have a lot of British girls at finishing school in Switzerland who are like, this is amazing. Uh, and it spreads really quickly. And so by 1900, there's a huge boom in eating chocolate. So the short answer is 1847. The longer answer in terms of what we would recognise as a chocolate bar and in terms of the growth of chocolate confectionery versus chocolate as a drink is 1870s onwards.
0: Lovely stuff. So now we're moving into a slightly more random selection of questions. <laughs> so do forgive me if they jump around somewhat, but we'll we'll see what happens. So um, Hastagram on Instagram... Asked, why do you think that Western culture developed knives and forks and Eastern cultures developed chopsticks? Well, they sort of come from the
2: same root. So if you think of the fork and the chopsticks as the equivalent, then that's it sort of makes more sense. So the earliest cultures, the earliest eating tools that have been found in archaeological sites and so on and so forth have been spoons or proto-spoons, something to convey a sloppy mess from the slop to your mouth. Obviously, you can drink from a bowl, but sometimes you want something else. So spoons are the big one. And knives obviously existed for a long time because how else are you going to butcher your woolly mammoth carcass whatever it is so um, not a woolly mammoth carcass before anybody writes in to go i don't think you're (laughs) fine so you're butchering your proto deer carcass um but knives so knives and spoons coexisted for ages in in all cultures pretty much and then you start slowly to get kind of it, it it branches outwards so asian culture develops chopsticks um because they're really useful and there are two kind of main reasons that seem to be i'm not an expert on on asian culture as you point out and on chopstick use either but the main reasons that are usually quoted for the development of chopsticks are first of all that there was a a couple of hundred years where food was very scarce so cooking techniques changed especially in china to be pre-chopped up and pre-proportioned really so when you got your dinner it was lots of little pieces that needed to be conveyed to the mouth and chopsticks which were already being used to cook with were very very useful for doing that because you could convey small amounts of food to your mouth and sort of elongate the meal the other thing was that confucius who obviously was incredibly important in chinese culture said that knives at the table were really not what you should be it's not a mark of civilization to have a weapon that can kill you at the dining table so those things sort of both worked together to develop chopsticks and chopsticks are not pan-asian there are lots of asian cultures that don't use chopsticks it's very much chinese it's spread to japan as well but that is in itself a whole essay in western europe we were using the spoon and the knife Uh, eating knives were pointy Uh, We know that knives and spoons were being carried by people as well. So you had your own personal cutlery, which you would carry with you. One of the reasons we know it is because virtually every village in Britain claims to be the home of football. And the reason they claim it is because somebody died playing football by falling on their eating knife. Now, loads of villages claim to be the home of football based on this. And it's always the same story. But for me, the main takeout is, why on earth are you carrying your knife with you and then playing a really violent game with it? I mean, surely you'd take it off, right? It just goes to show that, you know, people have been really silly throughout history. So we have knives and spoons for a very long time. Uh, And then we start to get the fork. And the fork originates as a thing to eat sticky sweet meats with at posh tables. So if you've got plums in brandy, they're quite difficult to eat with a spoon. And they're really difficult to eat with a knife because you're going to risk cutting your tongue off. So the fork developed really as a dessert thing just for the dessert table and then eventually it sort of started to creep into the main course but it wasn't until the 17th century that we really started to see forks in any quantity in this country Uh, and a little bit later that you started to go to dinner and have cutlery provided for you and it's one of the reasons that you see a divergence in in table manners and eating habits Uh, because of course it's not it's not very straightforward we have a tendency in western europe to think fork knife spoon that's your that's your cutlery anything else a bit weird But just look at the way people use it. In Britain, we pick up our fork and we pick up our knife and we use both throughout the meal. But if you look at some parts of America and some cultural norms in America, it's pick up your knife and your fork, chop up all your food, put your knife down, switch your fork to your right hand and use the fork as a scoop. And that's partly because the Americans got the fork slightly later than Britain and at a different point in time. And their version of table manners went in a different direction to the British version of table manners. So it's not that either of them is wrong. It's just that that's a different development and so chopsticks are just another version chopsticks are brilliant as eating tools and they're really in a lot of ways they're a lot more practical than a fork because you know you can make them out of virtually anything and they're a really really good cooking tool as well and you see today in a lot of modern kitchen chefs are starting to use chopsticks to stir and to pick things up and turn things more than tongs because you can get a lot of control with chopsticks and we used to have pudding sticks and things like that so there's a lot of similarities it's just that it's kind kind of what you see reflected in the culture that you're living in i suppose Mm.
0: so as promised we're going to jump to a slightly random question (laughs) now uh and nat on instagram has asked if you can tell us about tudor breakfast quite specific but i was intrigued
2: Yeah. uh, Tudor breakfast depends on who you are. Again, uh, Tudor dinner is the first thing to point out. Tudor dinner was about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. So you didn't need much. Dinner moves. Tudor dinner is 10 or 11 o'clock. Stuart dinner is kind of two o'clock. By the time you get to Jane Austen's time, it's kind of five, six o'clock. If you're wealthy, it gets later and later and later and later until you fetch up with Queen Victoria having a dinner at 8.30 and turning up late every night. So Tudor breakfast, you, you will have a breakfast pretty much no matter who you are but you probably won't talk about it it's not a formal meal because you know you're going to have dinner so you, it's probably just beer and um bread maybe some cheese. If you're aristocratic, you might have a bit of pie. You do get the development of sort of formal breakfasts among the very wealthy towards the 1560s, 1570s. And a formal breakfasts are where people get invited and they do have a meal together. But that's almost the equivalent in the Tudor period of afternoon tea in the 19th century because of the way in which the meal moves in terms of timings. So the short answer is beer, bread, maybe some cheese. I mean, it's a pretty good breakfast, to be that honest. Does I does mean, sound the the beer is not strong, I should point out, but it, it will give you quite a lot of calories, which you need if you're about to go out and do a physical job.
0: Yeah, sounds good to me. Um, so here's a quick fire one for you. Dizzy C17 asks, what was pottage? Uh,
2: the staple food of everybody in the medieval period is the short, short answer. Pottage is just a kind of stew. So everybody ate it. It develops into the word potage, which is the French today for a thick soup. Pottage was, if you're poor, pottage is whatever grain you get, whatever vegetables you can find. If you've got meat, great, but you probably don't have. You stuff it all in together, you eat it. So a classic medieval or Anglo-Saxon pottage would be barley, leeks, a bit of mustard seed, some water, stew it all together, eat it, kind of porridge. And porridge, again, is related to it. If you're wealthy... Your pottage might be beef and spices and currants and breadcrumbs, and that develops into plum pottage, which develops into Christmas pudding. So pottage is all things to all people. It can be absolutely minging. It can be absolutely beautiful, but it's essentially stew.
0: So there you go, Dizzy see. You can go away and make your own pottage because it can be whatever you want. Um, yeah, there's even sweet
2: ones. There's strawberry pottage from the Tudor period, which is absolutely lovely. Strawberries and rose water uh, and a few breadcrumbs to thicken it, and it's just divine oh that
0: sounds fantastic um so this question from Moscow as a dog first of all great name and the question um I found entertaining so I want to put this to you which is what made people so picky about offal um but I would broaden that out to say um what are some popular dishes that today some people might be a bit grossed out by
2: I find the awful question very interesting. I didn't grow up eating awful. My parents were very much of the... They were born just after the war. And of course, one of the reasons that we don't eat awful much today is because during the war, it was one of the few things you could get off the ration. So it became very popular, but also associated with a time of desperation. So my parents were both brought up not eating awful because their parents had basically just given it up after the war and gone, we're not doing that anymore. Um so I, when I became a food historian, I had to teach myself to eat offal. And it is a challenge. If you've never eaten it, it is strongly flavoured. And many, many of our foods today are very bland. But I taught myself to eat offal firstly with kidneys and the first time I ate a kidney I had the whole kidney and it's boingy and it was just it was a really difficult thing to eat and I thought I really don't think I like these then I found a 19th century recipe for kidneys where you slice them very very thinly flash fry them in butter add quite a lot of cayenne salt and then swill out the pan either with some white wine or with um, a bit of mushroom ketchup and you serve them like that it's sort of quasi-deviled kidneys I suppose but not quite And I thought these are amazing because the textural problem has gone away. And I quite like the year tang. and the way it mixes with the spice. I suddenly realized that offal takes spice. So what I would say is that a lot of people today have not tried offal. And if they have, they've only had it done badly. And I am a firm believer that almost anything is edible as long as you have it done well. There are almost certainly exceptions. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that's the first thing with offal. I think it's it is associated with poverty today, or has been for a long time, because it used to be very cheap and undervalued. It wasn't associated with poverty in the past, which is one of the reasons it was eaten more widely, because it was meat, and all meat was expensive. So again, it comes down to this idea that most people were vegetarian. So if you take something like humble pie or humble pie, which today people are, like, well, it's guts. It must have been disgusting. No way. If you had humble pie, that meant that you had a deer park and that meant you were very, very rich. So humbles were the innards specifically of a deer and they were very highly spiced. You only have to look at the recipes to see that this was food for the rich and very, very pleasurable eating as well. Um, So... You know, a lot of this is about the way in which our culture works, the way in which our values work. I think it's a very silly thing in many ways that people don't eat offal or try to at least find out whether or not they like it today, because we know that there are huge pressures on the environment and that eating less meat and making sure that we really maximise the way in which we use animals is a really key thing going forward. I mean, there are loads of other things we don't eat today either, either because we think it's disgusting or just because it's fallen out of fashion or because they're very difficult to produce there's loads and loads of things like um, fruit and vegetables in particular that we don't have today a lot of what we don't sell today or don't eat today is driven by supermarkets the supermarkets today have a lot of power to dictate what people eat so if you go to a supermarket you know you'll see five varieties of apple but And people will buy them. But if you go to a market, especially in apple season, you might find 100 varieties. And that's still nothing compared to the 3,000 varieties that you might have found in a Victorian seed catalogue. So we are restricted by the way in which we shop and we are restricted by our own choices. And it's a very, very complex thing. Um, But I was saying, if people think they don't like awful, start start kind of at a basic level. Start with maybe some calves liver and bacon. Really good, because bacon obviously will... you the flavours that you recognise or do something devil. Don't start with a massive cow's kidney that sits on your plate and really will put you off because the, I mean, the the textures are unrelenting. I really like heart, especially venison heart. But again, I would always slice it very thinly and flash fry it because otherwise
0: it it, it is boingy. Next up, we have another (laughs) entertainingly phrased question from um, Cloudburst Kingdom, who just simply said, more about people renting pineapples. So that's so intriguing. You have to tell us more. What does our kingdom mean?
2: (laughs) They didn't. It's a Victorian myth. Um, The Victorians are really, really fond of uh, making things up about the past. I mean, I I suppose this to me is a classic question about food mythology. Food history is one of the most mythologised things. I mean, everything gets mythologised, but food history in particular. So just to take a random selection of things that are always said that are not true. The Duchess of Bedfordshire did not invent afternoon tea. People were not shorter in the past apart from if they were really poor um there were vegetarians in the past people did not use spices to disguise tainted meat uh wells did they not people drank a lot of water in the past um because it was free and it was cheap and unless you drank it from a sewer it was fine you know i could go on there are so many simnel cake was not cooked by female servants to take to their mothers on mothering sunday partly because mothering sunday had nothing to do with mothers so uh, obviously i can get quite exercised about many of these things um, but uh, this pineapple thing is something that, that does circulate a lot. And I think everyone could be forgiven for thinking it was true because it's written down in the past. It was the Victorians who really do. I kind of blame them for a lot of things, really. But this whole idea that people rented pineapples, ho ho, let's laugh at them, seems to be a Victorian comment on the 18th century. Now, there were foods that people rented. So sugar craft confectionery, which was very expensive and very time consuming to make. We know people rented that because there were bills. There's one in particular from York um, that I'm thinking of where you could rent sugar craft sculpture. And that Begs loads of questions like how do you make sure your guests don't eat it so you can return it? How do you clean it in between times? I mean, sugar gets quite dusty. What happens if you drop a bit of wine on it? It's just gonna anyway. So you could rent certain foods, but not pineapples. Pineapples were first uh Im- imported into Britain in the late 17th century. There's a very famous picture of probably a gardener at Ham House presenting probably Charles II with a pineapple. And we started to grow them in around 1720. And they were very, very prized. They were seen as symbols of hospitality. They were difficult. They were lovely. They tasted nice. But they were quite popular by the late 18th century. And you could get hold of them if you were middle class or above with relative ease. So people weren't renting pineapples, but they were renting other things. And pineapples did have a massive impact on culture because you could... I mean, you see them a lot of the time in in iconography. But also you could get this beautifully designed fruit bowl to display your pineapple that had a kind of, uh, a sort of um, like a rondelle on a stick in the middle. So your pineapple would sit on this this little perch for a pineapple and then round it you'd put your other fruit. So because fruit was what you always finished a meal with if you were wealthy, with fruit. So that was your dessert. You might have ice creams and other things as well. But this huge fruit bowl would be part of it. And they were specially designed ones with pineapples. So pineapples are really cool and again there's a very good book on the history of the pineapple so if anybody really wants to get into it there is a full book on the pineapple and I will recommend it it's really interesting reading
0: lovely stuff and finally I just wanted to ask you about one of the things that people search more most for in food history which is the best feasts in history so what were some of the best feasts in history that if you could go back and be a guest at you would choose
2: I do have an answer for this, but it's kind of a fudge in that because I'm a social historian and because I'm very interested in the everyday rather than the great and the good, I would actually want to just go to a normal dinner party. I'd like to go to a couple, really, you know, because I want to kind of look in down, up and down the class system, really. So I would love to go to Uh, a royal feast in the Victorian era because I've written about Queen Victoria and I would love to see one actually in action and see how boring it was, to be honest, because she wasn't the greatest conversationalist. So I'd like to see the early stage when it was still Anna Francaise, so lots and lots of food on the table at once. That would be cool. So I'd like to go to that and just see how people react and what the food looked like. I'd also like to go to a sort of, I suppose, a middle-class feast in the 18th century and see what that looked like as well. But I, if I was going to go back in time and attend a feast or a dinner, I'd like to go and see the normal stuff because what I write about, what I research, all of that is trying to bring alive lives that we don't know about. So, you know, I've written a book on Winston Churchill's cook, not Winston Churchill because there's too much about Winston Churchill but there are loads of really big enormous feasts I mean you know George IV's coronation feast would be pretty cool there was a horse involved uh, and apparently he only had four of the sort of God knows how many hundred of dishes on offer because he was really nervous. And I mean, the whole coronation of George IV, to be fair, I'd quite like to go to. I'd like to watch his ex-wife banging on the door, screaming at him. I mean, it's so farcical. And then I'd love to go down to Brighton Pavilion with him and see what the kitchens looked like before they ripped all of them down and left only one room of it. But a big feast in history, do you know what? I'm going to leave that to the people that are really into great men striding the world and I'm going to go and go downstairs with the cooks and the
0: women that just got on with it really. That was Annie Gray. Annie's most recent book is Victory in the Kitchen, The Life of Churchill's Cook and she joined me to discuss it on the podcast last year. If you'd like to check that out then just search for Cooking for Churchill on your podcast feed or at historyextra.com. And I'll also be speaking to Annie later this year about her upcoming book, At Christmas We Feast. So check your podcast feeds in December for more on history's greatest festive feasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.